0: Good afternoon. Lan- launching cantors into space. First yes. I know a lot of rabbis that would contribute to do that.
1: <laughs>
0: if they could choose the canter, you know, don't you think so? Yeah. Sorry. Is it a round trip or one way? That's that's the. That's, that's one side. of the quotes. No, you can't send
1: your canter one way. Yeah, that's it. <coughs>
0: It's one of those things where you, you, uh, you, there was a a, a chain letter where you send your rabbi to the address at the top of the chain and and then uh, you get rabbis back and if you don't you get your own (laughs) rabbi back. Okay, 70 CE, 70 after zero, is the year that the Roman Empire, tired of the revolting, uh, the constant rebellions and revolts of Palestinian Jews, came with their most powerful legion and destroyed the temple of Jerusalem. That's the year that Judaism as we know it was born. Judaism as we know it is not the Judaism of the Bible. The Bible is the foundation, the sort of constitution of Jewish life. But the actual practice of Jewish life is born in the shadow of that catastrophe. When the remaining refugees of the Jewish community of Jerusalem and Palestine and Jews around the world retreated to the rabbis who survived the conflagration and asked them in simple Palestinian Aramaic, Vigates. <laughs> where do we go now? No temple, no priests, no sacrifices, no courts, no markets, no state, no land which has ours, no home in the world. We have nothing which connects us now to our past. What is the content of Jewishness now? And the Talmudic tradition, the books of the Talmud, are the way that the rabbis answered that question. In our context, the Talmud is the answer to the question, if I take seriously this mission you've sent me on, to be a blessing to the world, how do you do that in a world which is brutal? How do you do that in a world where snakes don't talk and seas don't split and manna doesn't fall from heaven and Pharaoh doesn't give up? How do you do that in a world of destruction and devastation and catastrophe? How do you do that when we're a homeless, placeless people? How do you maintain a sense that my mission is to bring blessing to the world if the world doesn't seem to want to be blessed? That is what the Talmud is all about. And the answer is given in a number of different kinds of literature in the Talmud. Now the problem with Talmud is that even more than Bible, Talmud is very difficult to penetrate. It takes a long time to sort of learn how to read this stuff. So we're going to take a look at a couple pieces of Talmudic literature today, sort of penetrate and try to find what was the answer that the rabbis gave to that great question. I accept the mandate of Abraham. I will be a blessing. Now show me how to do it in a world that is so cruel, that is so difficult, a world of real people, not a world of made-up mythical people, but a world of real people. Let's begin on, the, on page three. So, we're on Page three, it says, Building a Meaningful Life, Lessons from the Talmud. Everybody see that? you good with that?
1: Yes.
0: Now we're going to begin with a very simple problem. Talmud never deals with abstracts.
1: Yeah.
0: Talmud doesn't deal with abstractions. Talmud deals with really simple human problems. When you study Talmud, when you study Mishnah, for example, Talmud. When I first studied Talmud as a kid, I got it. I got it. Uh, uh. Uh. <laughs> one way or the other, it's going to work. You study Bava Metzia chapter one, and uh, in Bava Metzia chapter one, it starts like this: Two guys walk into the court each holding one half of a shirt, of a talus. This guy says, it's mine. This guy says, it's mine. This guy says, I found it, it's mine. And the other guy says, I found it, it's mine. Rabbi say, what do you do? Now, I had a professor once when I was in graduate school who was a great teacher of spirituality. He's one of these deep, 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 deep human beings who had mastered the spiritual literature of a dozen different traditions. He he knew Christianity, and he knew Buddhism, and he knew Islam, and he he knew Hinduism, and he knew all kinds of Asian and Western spiritualities. And I was sitting in front of him in a seminar once, and he said, you're a rabbi, right? I said, yeah, he's this Asian fellow. He spoke with a little bit of an Asian accent. He says, you're a rabbi? I said, yes, I'm a rabbi. He says, you explain something to me? I said, what? I don't understand your tradition says, Christianity, I understand. Islam, I understand. Buddhism, Hindu, I grew up in, I understand. You, two guys, one shirt, how is that God? <laughs> Damn good question. <laughs> Think about this for a minute. So I said to him, it's, that's exactly where God is. Because if you can figure out how to solve that problem, you can bring God into the world. And until you figure out how to solve that problem, God stays out of the world. He said, "Oh, this is interesting. <laughs> oh, teach me Talmud on one foot." No, that was, <laughs> <laughs> so here's Talmud. Ready? First, we have two verses from the Bible. These are the verses. The, Bible. The, the simplest, the simplest ethical problem you will ever meet: lost and found law. Right? Everybody knows this, right? Here's what it is: Exodus 23. When you encounter your enemy's ox or ass wandering, you must take it back to him. When you see the ass of your enemy lying on its burden, you afraid to raise it, you must nevertheless raise it with him. OK, what's the case? Somebody describe the case to me. You're walking down Newport Beach Boulevard, or what's the street here, Laguna? This is South Coast Highway? Okay, you're walking down South Coast Highway on the way to a gallery opening and you happen to see... A
2: Lamborghini parked on the side of the
0: road. There you go. A Lamborghini wandering through traffic with no apparent owner. You are tempted to do what?
1: Take
0: it. Take it, of course. You say, my God, that would look really nice in my driveway, you know? I would like that, right? Torah says... What do you got to do? What if you don't like the owner? What if you know that the owner is a schmuck? You still have to bring it back. Why? Finders keepers? Oh, come on. He doesn't deserve You feel good. No, you'll feel terrible, I'm telling you. Feel good, my Tokes, you know. Having a Lamborghini will make you feel good. Okay, here's another one. Ready? If you see your fellow's ox or sheep gone astray, I know this happens in your neighborhood all the time. Do not ignore it. Coyotes. Coyotes, right. Take it back to your fellow. If your fellow does not live near you or you do not know who he is, you shall bring it home and it shall remain with you until your fellow claims it. Then you give it back to him. You shall do the same with his ass, do the same with his garment, you shall do the same with anything your fellow loses and you find you must not remain indifferent. If you see your fellow's ass or ox fallen on the road, do not ignore him, help him raise it. Okay, what's the din here? What's the difference in this law and the other law? Here you find something, an animal, say, let's say an animal, and it's wandering about, okay? And you don't know who the owner is. The first one, you knew who the owner was. This one, you don't know who the owner is, okay? So, you
2: still have a responsibility to get into the owner.
0: All right, now, can you keep it? No. No. so what are you supposed to do? Tell me what you're supposed to do. You take it. it, You take it, and then and then when the owner comes and claims it, you say like, "What does it look like?" You know, to make sure it's got four legs. Okay, it's yours, right? Okay. Now, what problems is the Bible not anticipating? Okay, so we need, well, who said Facebook in the last hour? <laughs> okay, so, so we, we need some social network, seriously, we need a social network in order for the finder to announce he's found it and the loser to announce he's lost it. And that's
1: putting quite
0: a burden on the finder. Oh, oh now we've got a second question. What, why is this a burden? Because what it's other problem there, is...
2: Because this ass that you found is a pain in
0: the. Right.
2: <laughs> it could very it should, well be.
0: Yes, well, how does the phrase no good deed goes unpunished relate to this? So, you, you have the animal, you're supposed to bring the animal home. Okay? Well, Yes? But you can
2: relate it if you find a lost
0: cat. Yeah? And you're supposed to take the cat home, and you post signs around the neighborhood of a found cat, and you put a picture. What if you're allergic to cats? Ah, what if you're allergic because to cats? You don't have the money to pay for the food in the upcast. Ah, now The other thing is that you bring the animal home, and the animal's hungry. Yeah, yeah. And you don't have any... Ask chow at home. <laughs> Sorry. That, da, Brenda, will, will you take that out of <laughs> the. That, that, didn't, that didn't quite come out the way I wanted it. <laughs> you don't have any sheep chow at home. <laughs> Python food. You don't have Lamborghini, you know. All right. What else is. You're not anticipating? Go ahead. It, it happened to me. Oh, good.
2: I I used
1: a social network, and luckily I found the owner, but otherwise I would have had to take it
0: to the shelter. Ah, okay. So you had to make a very serious existential choice, dog or husband. (laughs) 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 I'm I'm tempted to ask you how long it took you to make a decision, (laughs) whether you went and asked your rabbi, you know. (laughs) Rabbi, what do you think? (laughs) Rabbi says, "Well, I know your husband, and I haven't met the dog. Let's think about it." (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Yes. It
1: was a tough
0: call. Yes. Okay. So I bring it home. What about the burden on me if you know it it comes out? What other moral problems are being are being ignored here? Yeah. What if the owner doesn't
1: want it back if they've actually abandoned
0: it? Yeah. What if the owner doesn't show up? How long do you keep it? And at what point are you allowed to say? Uh, yes. it, now it's mine. I waited, you know.
2: Never. Yeah. No.
0: Well, that's a that's an interesting question, you There's know. A
2: three day wait at a shelter. If the people <laughs> don't want, kill. if the owners. This happened to my son. Uh, he he wanted the dog, and the uh, the shelter insisted that he wait the three days. The people came and said, "Hey, we can't afford to keep it. My son got the
0: dog." Okay. Mm-hmm.
1: I have a question. Can you can you benefit
0: from right now? Oh, that's a good one. You have a cow, and the cow has milk. Ah. Whose milk is it? Can you drink the milk?
2: You have to milk the cow. You have,
0: you have to milk the cow. You have a sheep, you want to shear it. Okay. What if the cow or the milk happens to be, a, what if the cow or the sheep is in a uh, family way and gives birth to little cowalas? <laughs> who do they belong to? Little Shepsala, you know? Who, who do they belong to? Shefala, you know, who, who do they belong to? Shephula, you know, who, who they belong to? You the, the guy comes back and he says I lost my sheep. You give him back the sheep. Do you get to keep the shepzilla? Well, what, what happens if it gets pregnant when it's with your sheep?
1: <laughs>
0: or your daughter gets pregnant while the sheep is <laughs> 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 we, we better stop here because i gonna... <laughs> So you can see. That while the Bible sets out the principle, which is that the finder must make a reasonable effort to locate the loser and return lost property, there is a whole host of real-world problems that are associated with this set of issues. And that, that means that we are now in a moral dilemma issue. Let's see what the Mishnah does. Now, we we could spend all day, because there's Mishnah and then there's Talmud. You remember, Mishnah is the code of Jewish law created from 0 till 200 CE, where the rabbis were debating the Bible and seeking the ways in which the Bible could be lived. It is, in other words, the user's manual to the Torah. But as soon as I give anybody a rule, somebody's going to say, yeah, but how about that rule? And then you get the Talmud, which starts in 200 CE and is published in 500, which is the user's manual to the Mishnah. And then there's commentary and commentary on commentary and case law that develops around the Talmudic literature down to the present day. So here sits Rabbi Eli Spitz, a wise and kind human being, who happens to have a position on the Committee on Law and Standards of the Conservative Movement. So for the conservative synagogues and rabbis of the world, Eli is part of the legislative body. And when someone asks Eli a question, a deep, powerful, ethical question, is Dr. Pepper kosher for Pesach? Right? <laughs> what Ellie's going to do is research the precedents in the law going backwards, he usually goes backwards, from more contemporary ones to medieval ones back to ancient ones, and then he writes a tshuva, a, spe- a-, 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 a paper saying, here's why you can have Dr. Pepper as long as it's diet not regular, and he'll tell you why you, and that's how, that's how law is made to this day. So we're beginning with step one. Okay so far, right? Okay, good. Ready? Bava Metziah, chapter two. This is called Seas. These are the thing. Ready? Listen to the law. Which items belong to the finder? and which items is he liable to proclaim? Proclaim is who was it that said we have to connect the finder and the loser? So these are the, there are certain things that you can when you find them, they're yours automatically. And there's other things that you have to post pictures on all of the door, on all, all of the, the phone poles in your neighborhood telling people that you found it. OK? In other words, it's not yours, okay? These belong to the finder. If he found, now there's a nigun, there's a melody to studying Talmud. And you need a thumb and a little bit of music. So everybody put your thumb up like this, ready? You can help me with this, ready? These belong to the finder. If he found pieces of fruit scattered about, coins scattered about, small sheaves in the public domain, cakes of figs, baker's loaves, strings of fish, pieces of meat, wool shearings as they come from the farm, Stalks of flax or tongues of purple, that's a—that's pe- no, fancy cloth, right? These are his according to Rebbe Meir. So Rebbe Meir gives you a long list. What do all of these things have in common? Gets
1: they're,
3: not, no, they're, not they're, they're not identifying
0: mark, mark. Explain that to me. Go ahead. Good.
3: All right. If they have, none of these things have any uh, way that you by looking at them, who owns
0: them. Okay. If I find them, there's no way for a person to identify that was mine. Right? Fruits scattered about, coins scattered about, small sheaves, cakes of figs, baker's loaves. If you showed up and said it was mine, I'd say, How do you know? Yeah. How do you know that this one is yours and not, some? right? Rebbe right. right. Yehuda now gives us the rule. H- Howard, is that right? Good, good. It's good that you kept him and gave away the dog. <laughs> He's very perceptive. I didn't ask. Of course, I didn't ask the dog the question, but I, I, I assume that Howard got it right. You know, Rabbi Yehuda gives Howard's answer. Anything which has an unusual trait, he is liable to proclaim. So, if I find if I if I find any of this stuff, it, it, it's mine automatically it's mine automatically because there's nothing in it which a person could identify. But if there was anything of it that had something unusual, for example, he says, if he found a fig cake with a pot shirt in it or a loaf with a coin in it, something that just was a little out of the ordinary so that a a loser could come and say, that's mine, and the finder would say, well, obviously it's yours, okay, and give it back to him. Yes, please. But but we we start
2: with the precept that if you encounter an animal, yeah. presumably the animals all look pretty much the same, right. you have to give it back to the person who lost it. Right. How can you distinguish anything, unless there's a mark on the
0: animal? Ah, good. Hang on, that's a wonderful question. Don't lose that question, I'll be right back with you in a moment, right? Which ones is he liable to proclaim publicly when he found? So, in Mishnah 1, we say, these are the things which finders keepers, okay? Mishnah 2, these are the things in which the finder does not claim ownership of. Okay, we've already said one thing is anything with an unusual uh, aspect to it. Okay, here we get the, the law pieces of fruit in a utensil or the utensil as it is. All right, Tupperware. Okay, <laughs> coins in a purse or the purse as it is. F- piles of fruit, piles of coin. Three coins, whether in or out of the fountain, one on top of the other. (laughs) Small sheaves in a private domain, that is, you walked onto somebody's yard and found sheaves, right? Homemade loaves, how are they different from baker's loaves? Because they're not the same. Because they're not the same, right, good, good, good. Wool shearings as they come from the craftsman's shop. Jar of wine or jars of oil, these he's liable to proclaim. Okay, so what is the rule? Give me the rule. Can somebody abstract out of these cases the rule? When is it finders keepers? When am I, do I have to give the thing back? Look for when do I have to look for the owner?
2: When there's a reasonable chance you can find the owner.
0: Okay, in the case of let's go the other way around. When is it finders keepers?
2: When, you can't
0: when I couldn't when I, when I couldn't find the the loser or. Or there's nothing that the loser could could claim that would identify it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, when is it? When do I have to give it back? When there's something that distinguishes it. Yes, please. When I would say um,
2: these things don't necessarily make it identifiable, but something has done someone with the raw item.
0: Right, because that makes it identifiable.
2: <laughs> well, but also some effort has gone into it, so it that yes. creates more.
0: Ah, okay, good. Keep that in mind a moment, because we're going to come back to that one in a minute. Hold on to what we said so far. Don't go away. Let's look at another one. Number three. Does it matter where I found it? Sure. Yeah, if
1: it's on your property,
0: sure. what on yeah. your property. Let's find out what happens. So far, we talked about what we found. Now they're going to ask the question: Does it matter where I found it? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. If behind a fence or a hedge, one found pigeons tied together. In the ancient world, people, used to raise pigeons both for hobbies and for food, okay? Or on a path in the field, this one should not touch them. If he found a utensil in a dung heap, if it's covered up, he shouldn't touch it. If it's uncovered, he, must, he takes it but must proclaim it. If he found a pile of debris or an old wall, these belong to the finder. If he found it in a new wall, and it's located from the midpoint outward, it's his. But if it's located from the midpoint inward, it belongs to the household. You see that? Anybody follow that one? If he'd rented the house to others, even if he found the items in the house, they're his. Anyone ever listened to Car Talk? NPR? The greatest radio program ever created by human beings? Ray and Tom Maliazzi? They once had a case. Here was a guy calls up and he says the following. I bought a 19-something-something Cadillac, right? I bought it from a, from a single guy, uh, an owner, a private owner, right? I drove it for two years. After two years, I had a flat tire. I pulled to the side of the road, I un- opened the trunk, I took out the spare tire, and underneath the spare tire, next to where the jack is bolted into the chassis of the car, I found a bag with
1: $10,000.
0: Do I keep the money or do I give it back? Well, their first answer was much, cl- much more colorful. Their first answer was What kind of guy did you buy a car from? <laughs> Is he looking for you, right? I mean, you know, like what kind of a guy has, you know? If you've, if you've bought it, if you bought, if you bought the car, and, and you found the money, do you have to give it back? It's an interesting question, right? Yeah. And the fact that you found it underneath the spare, like if it was just in the trunk, would it have made a difference, right? Or on the front seat, okay? Here's the following. Now remember in the old days, a store, what a store used to look like, you know, before God gave us target, you know? <laughs> a, a, a store was, you walked into an establishment and there was a counter and a person stood at the counter, right? And behind the counter were shelves where all the goods were. And you asked that person. This man, person called a service person. We don't have those anymore. Um, where they actually help you. Uh, crazy idea, but it, it used to be. And you tell the person what you want and he would bring it to you, right? So now what if you walk into a store and you find something? Okay. If he found items in a store... Okay, you walk in the store and you find something, fruit, bread, right? Money, okay? It belongs to the finder. If the items are located between the counter and the storekeeper, it belongs to the storekeeper. So, it matters where in the store you find it, right? If right? If you if 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 you walk into the public area of the store and find something, it belongs to You, you the finder. If it's behind the counter, it belongs to the owner. The owner. Okay, now a money changer. If you, if you walk into a money changer, okay, and you find a $100 bill sitting on the floor, okay? If, if it's in front of the money changer, it's Yours. the finder. Yeah. If, he, if it was between the money changer's stool and the money changer, it's his. It's his. He who purchased from his fellow or sent produce to fellow if he found coins among the produce. That's like the the Maliazzi case. They're his. If they were bound together, he takes the money but proclaims that he's found them. Can anybody help me figure out what the logic is here? You see what's going on? What the rabbis... And by the way, there's a lot more of this. And there's a whole Talmud on this. So what's happening is the following. The Talmud recognizes that while the Bible sets out the basic principle that we have to return a lost object. There is a world of moral complexity to this. What you found, where you found it, in what condition it was when you found it, and then what are the obligations that you have to observe while you find it, right? All kinds of interesting questions. But let's see if we can figure out the logic. So you said before, if I find stuff and I can't identify it. That is, nobody could have identified that was my loaf of bread or those were my oranges, right? Or those were my coins. Then that belongs to the finder, okay? If, on the other hand, there's something about it which can be identified, it's a homemade bread or it was fruit in a basket, in a utensil of some sort, so that it's more or less identifiable, that belongs to the loser loser, and I have to proclaim it. I have to proclaim it. Now, what's the logic there? Why is it not absolute? It all belongs to the finder. It all belongs to the loser. What's the logic? Can anybody help me figure out what the logic is? Yes, please. We
1: were always taught finders, keepers, losers, weavers.
0: Yes, we were taught finders, keepers, losers, weavers. But the Talmud says that that applies only in certain circumstances. And I'm trying to figure out what is the rule that governs those circumstances. Ayah
2: to do is is decrease interhuman conflict by saying if we can identify, we all agree by convention right. that if we can identify it, right, um, it goes back to the person who owns it. That right. way, we are. I'm protected just as you are protected right. by the same rule. Right. Whereas that if it's not identifiable reasonably, right, that's, that's a different a different question. If right. it's not identifiable reasonably. Then we're going to give it to the finder because otherwise you could have hundred people say no, it's mine, no, it's mine. You get this big melee. Okay, that's possible.
0: Let, but let's go a little bit farther. Let me ask you a question. At what point does it become the finder's?
1: Kind
2: of you're going to ask
0: something. you going to answer something to that? No, I
2: was going to say. Please. The
0: loser. You're exactly right.
2: Yes, right. So if you found my stacked coins as opposed to them strewn about, then they're mine because I stacked them.
0: So, what is your name, please? Marion. Marion has offered a brilliant Talmudic observation. The determining factor is the mind of the loser. The determining factor is the mind of the loser. It's not only what you said, what you said is exactly correct, but watch the way they construct the case. If the item is such that a reasonable person would go looking for it and still think it's his even though he lost it, that item has to be proclaimed and the finder has to make an effort to locate the loser. If, however, the item is such that a reasonable purpose person would say, ah, screw it, it's not worth it, I'll never find it or I'll never be able to identify it, that moment when he says, ah, forget about it, screw it, it's not worth it, is called Yeush. means giving it up. At that moment, he loses possession of it, and the finder gets to keep it. My wife went to Trader Joe's and bought some fruit. This is a true, true story. And when she came home, she discovered that the bag had a hole in it and most of the fruit had fallen out of the bag. She said, should I go back and look for it? I said, you'll never find it. She said, you're probably right. Ah, that was silly not to have checked it. However, if you lose a wallet, your chances are you're still thinking that it's mine and I, want, I should go back and take a look for it. So the determination of the possession of the, of the legal ownership of the object all depends upon the mind of the person who lost it. What would a reasonable person in that circumstance be thinking? Now, here's the point of all of this because you're saying to yourself, okay, that's fine, what did you come teach me this for?
1: It's
0: a beautiful day outside and I can be watching football.
1: <laughs>
0: so, when I walk the public domain, when I walk in the street, right, and I find something, which happens all the time, right? Think of the moral exercise or the cognitive exercise I have to go through. I find a thing. I have to ask myself, what? What would I be thinking if I were the person who lost this? Would I be thinking this is still mine and I should come looking for it? Or would I be thinking, ah, heck with it, it's not worth it, and I'm giving up ownership on it? That being said, that being said, what have, what has the law just done? It's taught you to think of the other human being. Say what? It's taught you to think of the other human being. Which, what do you call that in English? Empathy. 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 <laughs> this is teaching you an ethic of empathy. That's exactly correct. You want to add something? Yeah, I want to add
1: something, because this was a situation that I had
0: actually. I Good. was driving my car, Yeah. Yes. And I would have, like, what if it was a kid, you right. know,
2: or something? There was nobody in the neighborhood. It was a very quiet, suburban neighborhood. So I'm like, it's mine. But I have to say, I felt a little guilty. Mm-hmm. like, I felt like, and what if I had seen somebody walking, but i have gone up to them and said, did you lose any money? Uh, yeah, I lost some. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, in that situation, I think what the what this is saying is that it's mine because you can't identify it. But with that a $100 bill?
0: Well, l- let's use... Oh, l- so Yes, so I, I want to—I just want to correct the, your, your thinking, part. You, you, you're exactly correct. It's not—it's not that it couldn't be identified. It's—do you think the owner of this is still thinking about it, and still—and is—and is tempted to come looking for it? And if the owner is tempted to come looking for it, right? That means the owner still maintains some degree of ownership on it. Okay. On the other hand, if you think it's the kind of thing where somebody's going to say, ought to heck with it, it's just not worth it, then that person, then, then you gain ownership of it. Okay. So, what, what's done, what I, want the pro, I, I don't want to deal, deal with it, you're exactly right. Because okay. you're going to feel lousy either way, by the way. Yeah. Right? So, I'd take it and go buy yourself something nice to feel better at. <laughs> <laughs> That That's what I would have done. Yeah, yeah Howard. Okay. Yeah. Howard, right? Yes. Okay. Good.
3: One time, I guess this was about 30 years ago. Yeah. I was coming out of a donut shop.
1: <laughs> <laughs> One no, no.
0: <laughs> Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. I a cup of coffee.
3: yeah. <laughs> um, and I found a whole roll of money. Yeah. There must have been several hundred dollars in it at least. Yeah. And I didn't know what to do or how to, it, there was no way of telling who it belonged to. Right. It in your donuts. No, I didn't. But, I, but this is what I did, and I want to know whether I did the right thing. Yeah, I, I, I took the money into the donut shop, and I said, I found this outside your store. Will you keep it until someone comes to claim it? Right. Was that the wrong thing to do or the right thing? To do?
0: Well, let's ask, let's ask the Talmudic question. Do you think that the owner of that roll of money, yeah. when he gets home and discovers that his roll of money is no longer in his pocket, is going to say, oh, heck, I lost that. I'm going to go back and see if I can find it. Oh,
3: absolutely. Or
0: do you think that person is going to get home and say, oh, heck, it's just not worth it?
3: No, I think, no, but that, but my question was, a sli- I agree that... Right. You would have thought. Okay. My question was, was I obligated to advertise that I found this money? Well,
0: by giving it to the shop and saying, you hold this for me, and if anybody comes asking for it, it was found here. You have done that. That's what you have done. That counts as advertising? That counts as advertising. But what if he gives the money to the shop, and the guy comes in and says, oh, I
2: lost $1,000. The shop says, oh, too bad. Yeah. But that's not
1: okay. That's but, but he's done the right thing. Yes. He's
0: done the right thing. The people in the shop may be gunners, you know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> right? Has he done the right
1: thing? If not sure whether or not you can trust the shop That's and so now you're getting into a double thing yeah. now you're getting
0: into a much no. now you're getting yeah, into a much, much more complicated. No, I like, see everyone's got comments on this thing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, please. There's a legend I understand about a Rebbe
2: who bought a sheep and found a
0: a diamond. Jewel it was yeah, at, it was a donkey and, and the diamond was the sheep the diamond was under the spot. saddle. And yeah. the uh,
2: his scholars Said, well, you bought it. And he said, yes, but the seller sold me a sheep. Right. Did not know he sold me a sheep and a diamond, and he insisted on returning.
0: Yeah, his name is Shimon ben Shetach, and he was one of the very earliest of rabbis. And the scholars came to him and said, Rebbe, according to the law, it's yours. Right. right. It's yours. Right? But the Rebbe said, I'm bringing it back. And they said, why are you bringing it back? It's not, it's not necessary. And he says, what do you think I am, a barbarian? So that, now that's interesting because what they're recognizing there is the following. Now this makes it even more complicated. There's the law, and then there's a level of morality that's beyond the law. Lifnim shirat hadin, it's called in Hebrew. There's a level of doing what's right even if it's beyond the law, and that's something that a, that a person who considers himself a holy person has to keep in mind. Has to keep in mind. Yes, please. Yeah.
2: Why do the rabbis? base the, the the answer on how one person is supposed to perceive the other person's mindset. Talk about an arbitrary thing. No, no, if no. One no. person if if the person who if the finder is a schmuck, he's gonna think that the that the loser wasn't looking for it. Yeah. If the finder is a good guy, yeah. he's gonna think that the that the loser is looking That's for it. That's a
0: wonderful it's- question and that gets us to the point of the talk, which is an ethic of empathy is the essence of Jewish ethics. And an ethic of empathy has to be taught. People are not naturally empathetic, we're naturally selfish. But what you have in halacha, in Jewish law, is an exquisite curriculum in empathy. And so from the time you're a little kid, you are taught to ask the question, what might the other one be thinking? What might the other one be feeling? what is my responsibility to the other one based on the other one's point of view? So the rabbinic answer to the question, how is it that I am to be a blessing to the world in a world which is tough and brutal, is you are to maintain an, an exquisite ethic of empathy. Now, it's not easy. Howard finds the money in front of the in front of the donut shop, and there's a hundred moral problems with how to deal with this. Whether he keeps it, gives it to the shop, announces in the newspaper that he found it, gives it to a person who comes and claims it, gives it to charity, that's not the issue as much as what kind of thinking goes on in his head. How is it that we have shaped his personality so that he's even asking these questions? Because the, the purpose of religion in the mind of the rabbis it's not only to serve God, it is shaping human personalities. And the question that you ask when you read a law or tradition is, what sort of human personality is this trying to shape? The fact that he stopped and asked himself the question, what am I obligated to do? What would the other be thinking? How would I feel if I were in that position? What would I do? What would be the reasonable thing to do? The fact that he's even asking those questions means that the system has worked. It's created an empathetic consciousness, which is the beginning of Eden. That's how you get out of Egypt. A slave only thinks about himself. Because a slave has no reality except his own reality, his own suffering at the moment. But a human being begins to say, what would the other be thinking? And that's how you bring blessing to the world. You wanted to say something, yes. Well,
2: I have a real life experience. Please. It is today, and I have lost my glasses. Oh
1: no. <laughs> and I am looking for them. <laughs> so nobody no, should find them, and we can't keep What do they look like? Are they, are they, well, they look like uh, Sarah Palin.
0: Anyone see Sarah Palin in the room? Here's how you know you found You put them on, you can see Russia. You know, you know. I want to suggest to you that this is what the Talmudic tradition is all about. We, in English, we use the word Talmudic to mean purposely, uh, um, purposely legalistic or and small, but this is not what it's about. What it's about is shaping a certain kind of human personality. And that personality rests upon this quality of empathy. Remember, over and over again, the Torah says you're to do such and such, why? Because you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Empathy is the source of Jewish ethics. Empathy is rooted in memory. And that's why all of us maintain the memory of having been a slave in Egypt. But empathy is a very sophisticated cognitive move because it means I have to ask myself, what would I be thinking were I in that position? What is the other thinking? What is the other feeling? This is what the Talmud took to mean when the Bible says you will love the other as you love yourself. You ask yourself, what does the other need? And what is my obligation based on the other's need? In other words, what the, well, I'll be right with you, what the Talmud has done is expand our sense of self. Now here's a quick philosophy of Judaism. Hey, what, get your comment first, then I'll give you my philosophy.
1: No, I'm You it. sure? Yeah.
0: Okay. When you see a human being, you just see their outline, their physical outline, but there's something more important than their physical outline. Every one of us walks the world with a circle around us. Call it a circle of care, a circle of concern. It's the people, the things that we care for most that we feel personally. For for many human beings, a person's circle of care and concern ends at the tip of their nose. Me, myself, and I, that's all I care for. That's all I care for. Okay? For a few of us, For a few of us, we're able to open up the circle of care and include another. That's what marriage is about, what love is about. There's this other in the world, and her pain hurts me, and her joy I feel. Now understand, there comes tremendous vulnerability when you include another in your circle. Tremendous vulnerability Because now that person's pain becomes yours and you can't protect that person 24 hours a day. Some of us have had children and we say our children are our circle of care. And that increases our our vulnerability exponentially. Because if you've ever had kids you know this fact. That there's people in the world who own your soul but you can't protect them nor can you control them. You can't control them. You remember the first night? after your kid got his driver's license that you gave him the keys to the car and you said, 11 o'clock. Be home at 11 o'clock. And at quarter to two, you were still waiting. Where the fuck are the kids? Right? And the kid comes home all, oh, we had a wonderful time. It's not 11 o'clock. Not even in Tokyo. (laughs) Where have you been? Well, you know, and you realize, I can't control this kid anymore right? First time some boy took your daughter out on a date, right? And you didn't send a German shepherd along with him, you know? You, know. you touch my daughter, I cut off, it. you know? <laughs> but that's what it means, to circle of vulnerability. Some of us have friends that are in our circle of caring. Now, just incidentally, American culture interprets us, sees us as individuals. American culture, which is rooted in the English liberal tradition, imagines that we're all born as self possessed individuals. And that to, to have a claim on the self diminishes the self. Because it means I owe somebody something. And that in American culture, freedom is the highest value, and any claim on the self diminishes my freedom, therefore, it diminishes myself. Don't tread on me was the American flag up until very late. Well, but but the notion that I'm an individual. The Jewish tradition sees something very disturbing about that. That a person who's not willing to open the circle of the self lives a very shallow and ugly life, a narrow life, a small life. Jewish tradition teaches the opposite. Jewish tradition would say, the bigger you open the circle of care, the deeper and, and, and more meaningful your existence. God is the circle of care that includes everybody. God doesn't have a self to care for, so God cares for everybody. God is the symbol and the reality of universal care. As you open the circle of care to include more, you become more godly. You become more godly. The word for this in the Jewish tradition is Kedushah. Kadosh. Kadosh. Kuf Shin, Kadosh. That word means holy or sacred. Forget about what it means. Think about how it's used. On Friday night at a Shabbos or Yontif table when I invite friends and family to stand together and celebrate the happiness of the Sabbath, we stand together around the table, we lift a glass of wine and we say a prayer. We don't sanctify the wine, the wine is Manischewitz, no good. (laughs) Why Jews drink Manischewitz? You have to bring me back to explain that. But we say a prayer and what do we do is we sanctify the circle that stands around that table and that prayer is called Kiddush. Kiddush. Two people who love each other and have determined to share their lives together. Their hearts and souls stand next to each other. A ring is put on a finger and one says to the other, at mikudeshet li. The word for marriage in Judaism is Kiddushin. The one I love dies and I don't let go. So I stand up in synagogue for a year and then several times during the year after that and I recite a prayer which says, I'm not letting go of this one. And that, one, that prayer is called Kaddish. Kiddush Kaddish Kiddushim means bonding, means opening the circle of the self to include the other. Right? Opening the circle of the self to include the other is Kiddushah. It's holiness. God is Kadosh. That's what it says in the book of Leviticus. It says, Kidoshim tihi you, ki you will be Kadosh because I, God, am Kadosh. This is the one attribute of God you and I can take on. Bonding. Holding the other close. Opening the circle of the self to include the other. I've got one more proof for you. What's the opposite of Kadosh? Well, at the end of Shabbos, you make a bracha called Havdalah. Anyone ever do Havdalah? <laughs> last bracha. It's Bori Priyagafen, Bori Mine Samim, Bori Mine Vesamim, Bori and the last bracha. Hamavdil Ben Kodesh le chol. The opposite of Kodesh is Chol. Chol we translate as secular or profane or everyday or ordinary. What is the literal meaning of the Hebrew word chol? Chol. Sand. S-A-N-D. Sand. There's a whole lot of it right over here. Go out there, pick up a handful of sand, what happens? It all runs out of your hand. How come? Because nothing connects the grains to each other. They are atomized. The opposite of Kedusha is San, is Chol, that which is atomized, that's separated. What you find in the Jewish tradition is an ethic of bonding, of mutual care and responsibility, an ethic of empathy. And everything we do yields this. Why? Because in the Garden of Eden there was oneness. And our job is to return the world to a state of oneness, which we interpret to mean Kiddushah. Every mitzvah we do brings the world a little more oneness. That's why you say, Asher Kiddushanu B'mitzvotav. By means of this mitzvah, I bring Kiddushah to my life. That's what this religion is about. And that's what the rabbis designed. A thousand, thousand ways every day to bring a little more oneness to the world. Now, this was a debate. There was a debate in the Talmud about this. We have 10 minutes, that should be enough. If not, you'll kill me, but you. <laughs> <laughs> Look at page four. Now, after the revolt of 70 that failed and the temple got destroyed. The rabbis set up shop in a town called Yavne. And they governed the Jewish people for another generation. And then because Jews never learned, they did it again. They embraced a a revolutionary named Bar Kokhba. And he rose up against the Romans. And the Romans decided enough is enough is enough. And they came down like a ton of bricks on Bar Kokhba's revolt. And they smashed Jewish life in Palestine. And they went and arrested all of the leaders who led to the Kokhba revolt, including Rabbi Akiva, and murdered them and the, tortured them to death in the most horrible ways so that they would all understand this is what happens when you defy the Romans. This is what happened next. The students of Rabbi Akiva, having witnessed his horrible, brutal, painful death, gathered one day to discuss the world. All these guys, Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Shimon, were the three disciples of Rabbi Akiba. And they were sitting together. And then a kid named Judah was talking, one of their students named Judah was there. Rabbi Yehuda began by observing how noble are the works of this Roman nation. They lay out streets, they build bridges, they erected baths. So what does he say? They're brutal. They're barbaric. They're cruel. But you know what? They're damn good engineers. (laughs) So there's a question being asked here. Is there anything to be learned from Romans? Yes, they're barbaric. Yes, they're cruel. Yes, they're horrible. But you know what? Can we at least say, can we at least grant them that they're damn good engineers, that they build nice roads and nice cities and nice aqueducts and nice bridges and nice, you know, coliseums? In other words, the outside world that we live in, we're a small minority culture and we live in this big Roman world. Is there anything that they can teach us? Should we have a, a role in their world? Should we, believe, should, we, should we participate in that world? Do we have a responsibility to them? We are taught, after all, to be a blessing to all the nations of the world. Does that include them? Rabbi Yehuda says, yes. They can build bridges, but they don't know Torah. So we can learn bridge building from them, and maybe one day they'll learn Torah from us. He is an open... He believes in an open Judaism. (coughs) Rabbi Yossi wasn't sure. He wasn't sure because as much as he was committed to to an open Judaism, he also knew the brutality of the Romans who tortured his teacher to death in front of their eyes. And then comes Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai hates them. All that they made, they made to serve themselves. They lay out streets to settle, prostitutes, baths to pamper themselves, bridges to levy tolls. Stay away from them. There's nothing in their world which is of any value. Stay away from them. They are poisonous. Stay away from them. But you know what? They control the world. So if you stay away from them, what do you perforce have to do? Stay away from the whole world. Because the world is full of their poison. In other words, the only way to live a life of spirituality A life of Judaism, a life with God, is to withdraw from the world. A friend of mine sends this kid to yeshiva in Detroit, and one of the conditions of enrollment in this particular Orthodox day school is you're not permitted to own a television set. They don't want kids exposed to that world because that world is pornographic and poisonous. Stay away from that. Stay away from them. You know the groups of Jews who isolate themselves. You see, the, the sense is which it's all Nazi. Hitler plays a really live role in those communities because for them it's all Nazis. So the question is this, the question is, do we step into the world knowing that it's brutal or do we step out of the world? In the face of such catastrophe, what do we do? And by the way, the reason I think this text is so profound, this is post Holocaust Judaism. Can you be a Jew in the world? Or do you need to be a Jew out of the world? That's a very serious question. Can you be a Jew in the world? Or do you have to step out of the world to be a Jew? Can you take things from the outside world and not take their poison? We speak English. We dress like they do. We've adopted things like democracy and feminism from them. Does the poison come with that stuff? Really interesting kinds of questions, right? Here's what happens. I know you want to know what happens. Judah, this kid who was with them, right, went off and told the sages' words until they were heard by the Roman government, which put out a decree. Judah, Rabbi Yehuda, who acclaimed us, he shall be acclaimed. He becomes the Nasi, the head of the community. Yossi, who remains silent, shall be exiled to Sepphoris. not so bad. Sepphoris is a resort town on the north of Galilee. It's like being exiled to Lake Tahoe for the rest of your life. You know, I'm waiting to be exiled to Maui. You know, the Jewish community gets tired of me and says, "Send you to Maui forever." Okay. (laughs) Shimon, who vilified us, shall be put to death. They put a contract out on his life. As a result, Rabbi Shimon and his son hid out in the house of study, where every day Rabbi Shimon's wife would bring him a bread and a jug of water, which they sustained themselves. Okay. So the Romans declare they're going to kill him. So where does he go to hide? In the synagogue, they'll never look for a rabbi there. So someone once said to me, "Yeah, because it's full of rabbis. Don't tell them apart, you know." Why do you think he went there? Why did he go there? Of all the places, you're hiding from the Romans. Why do you go to the synagogue? That was his life. Because that's his life. Because he's a man who believes that Torah is life, and nothing else is life. And he goes to the place of Torah. But there's still one connection to the world, right? What's the connection? He's still a physical being. He still has to eat. And, that, and therefore, his wife is the conduit from the physical world that he, he can't con- cut himself completely off from the world because he still has to eat. And in many cultures, the woman is the connection, right? She's the world. She's the world. So what happens? He says to his son... And this is as sexist as you want it to be. (laughs) Women's resolution is frail. Your mother put to the torture may reveal her hiding. Either he's worried about her, or he's not worried about her. Either way, he says, we can't stay here. So they went and hid in a cave. Now, it's an interesting image, by the way, a cave. In mythology, what does a cave represent? What's the metaphor of a cave? A womb. What else is a cave? Or where is a cave? It's in the... So it's not only a womb; it's also a grave. a tomb, a grave. A cave is a grave. A cave is a womb. Anybody recall from world literature? A cave. Someone said what? Plato. What was Plato's cave? It
2: was. It was this world
0: Plato's cave was this world, which is the illusory world, and you have to get out of the cave in order to know the truth. For Rabbi Shimon, it's the opposite. Remember, he hates the Greeks. He hates Romans. So for him, the cave is not the illusory world. For him, this is the illusory world. The cave is truth. So he goes to the cave, and a miracle occurs. A carob tree and a well were created. Now, if God makes you a tree and a well, can you say that God approves of what you're doing? I'd say so. And by the way, does that sound familiar to anybody? A place where there's a magic tree and a flow of water? It sort of sounds like the Garden of Eden. And for Rabbi Shimon, it was. Because here's the world, all by himself, with his son, his student, and God. That's Eden. Eden is a place where there are two human beings. Now you got another place where two human beings. Right? And what happens? Listen to the next story they would remove their garments and sit up to their necks in sand and study the entire day. And when it was time for prayer, they'd put their garments back on, wrap themselves in their prayer shawls and pray, and afterwards they removed remove their garments they wouldn't wear out. And they stayed there 12 years. So if you were to walk in the cave one afternoon, what would you see? (laughs) Heads. See, this is Rabbi Shimon's ideal. Anything of the body means I'm somehow still connected to the poison of the Romans to the contamination of this world. I want to live a world of pure spirituality with no connection to the contaminants of the real world. What the rabbis are debating is what we debated after the Holocaust. Can you live in this world? And Rabbi Shimon says, no, it's a world which is thoroughly corrupted. You can't bring blessing to this world. You can't redeem this world. All you can do is escape. Spirituality as an escape from the world. This is true religion. True religion is sitting, it's just a talking head talking Torah all day long. Without having to touch, do, or act in the world, which will always contaminate you. There's a word for this. In English we call it monasticism. Because the monastic hides himself away from the world in order to achieve spiritual enlightenment. The rabbis, after the destruction and after Bar Kokhba, were debating what is the shape of Jewish spirituality. Is it in the world or does it escape from the world? And here is the debate. Here is Rabbi Shimon and his son, up to their necks in sand, studying Torah, I, it's its nirvana. That's nirvana, isn't it? Isn't that what a Jew should do? Study all day long and not have to make a living? Study all day long and not have to touch the world? <laughs> Study all day long and not have to get involved in politics? Study all day long and not have to know what's going on? Anything outside of the world of Torah? There's nothing outside of Torah. You, the army. It's Torah, Torah, Torah. <laughs> and nothing else. Yes, quiz. I'm on a roll, so you yeah, better. I And their theory is the same thing. That's their answer. Right, and by the way, not just ultra-Orthodox. A lot of other people said the same thing. I give up on the world. The world is hell. It's all Auschwitz. Why bother? Yes, please.
3: But they're getting free water and free food.
0: From God. (laughs) Maybe. Yeah, well, let's find out what happens next. Ready? I know you want to know. Then the prophet Eliyahu, Elijah, came and standing at the entrance of the cave said, Inform the son of Yochai that Caesar is dead and the decree is annulled. Come out, come out, wherever you are. (laughs) Ali, Ali, oxen free. So they went out. And seeing people plowing and sowing, Rabbi Shimon exclaimed, These men forsake life eternal and engage in life temporal. And whatever they cast their eyes on was immediately incinerated, (laughs) At that, a divine voice went forth and said, Have you come out to destroy my world? Return to your cave. <laughs> wow. well, if you're in a cave for 12 years and you step out into the sunlight, what's going to happen?
1: <inaudible>
0: you can't see anything. It's hard. So they, <laughs> they can see. What did they see? What do they see people doing? Living, living. Now, are they sinning? Working. What are they doing? Working. They're making a living. What kind of living are they making? <inaudible> is, that, is that Jewishly significant? lechem <inaudible> min It's a mitzvah a mitzvah. They're doing mitzvahs in the world, but they're doing it in the physical world. But for Rabbi Yossi, for, Rabbi, for, for Shimon bar Yochai, that's not enough. Why? Because he draws a sharp line between world eternal, world temporal. Life of the spirit, life of the body. Life for God, life for yourself. Life that is light and life that is darkness. And he gets so angry that he sees people Wasting their lives, making a living, raising families, building community, making things happen in the world. He gets so angry that whatever he looks at, this is a great metaphor for judgmentalism, whatever he looks at is burned up. And God comes and says, Go back to the cave. And listen, this is the most important phrase in the Go back to the cave, because have you come out to destroy what? My. My world. What's the world of Rabbi Shimon? The cave. What's God's world? Our world. This world. The material world. So he goes back and then spends another year in a cave. And finally they say, you know, no one stays in hell more than 12 months. <laughs> so they decided to come out. So they decided to come out. Whenever Rabbi Eliezer injured anyone, Rabbi Shimon would heal them. And he's saying, my son, you and I are enough for the world. So they, they decided after another year to come out. And they lived in the world. And Rabbi Eliezer, the son, because he's a teenager. And teenagers hate everything that their parents stand for. <laughs> except their money. Okay? <laughs> Somehow my kids made a compromise with my credit cards. <laughs> but everything else, of course, is just bourgeois crap. you know? <laughs> right? So, and so the kid is still judgmental. But the father like, calms him down. He says, look, son. The world may be going to hell, but the two of us were enough. That's one ending to the story. <laughs> Rabbinic stories always have more than one ending. So one ending to the story is they still hate the world, yeah. but they're forced to live in it. That's, that's your ultra-Orthodox world, right? Now, here's another ending to the story. There's three endings. I gave you two of them. That was one. Here's the second ending. It was Arab Shabbos. It was getting dark. And they see an old man running in the twilight with two bunches of myrtle. It's a fragrant bush. And they said to him, What are you doing? And he says, They're likvot shabbos. This is an honor of Shabbat. They said, But you don't need two. Why not one? And he answers them, You know, that in the Ten Commandments, repeated twice. Ten Commandments repeated twice in the Torah. Yesterday we read one version in Exodus, and there's another one in Deuteronomy. In one it says, Zachorat Yom HaShabbat, and the other it says, Shemorat Yom HaShabbat. Keep the Sabbath, remember the Sabbath. It says, this, twice the Shabbos is, is commanded to us, so I have two bundles of myrtle. Rabbi Shimon said to his son, See how precious the commandments are to Israel, and their minds were put at ease. Okay, you can't leave, take your tour of the gallery until you explain that to me.
2: <laughs>
0: Why were their minds put at ease? Yes, please. Did
2: you discover
0: what did they discover?
3: They discovered someone who.
0: Okay, the commandments. Let's start with the commandments. This is a man who takes the commandments seriously in the world. Right? Why are commandments an answer to Rabbi Shimon's problem? Because that's how you live in the world with God. Yes, that's how you live in the world with God. In fact, that's how you bring God into the world. Because a commandment has to be done with your physical self. You keep kosher with your physical self. You give stokka with your physical self. You make shabbos with your physical self. You can't think a commandment. There's no commandment in the world which can be done cognitively. Even tefillah, even prayer, that's your field, has to be said out loud. Has to be said out loud. Everything is the body in the world, but it's for the sake of God. So the commandment is the meeting place of spirituality and materiality. It is the meeting place of heaven and earth. The commandment is the meeting place of what is and what ought to be. The commandment is our way of living in a poisonous world without giving up our mandate to bring blessing to that world. But not just any commandment. Second answer, you're almost there. You're halfway to the galleries. (laughs) there's a particular mitzvah being offered here what's the mitzvah? Shabbat so how is Shabbat an answer to Rabbi Shimon's problem? gives him a
2: day of thinking and working it out with himself
0: and beautiful he's moving to the Garden of Eden if you say that the cave is the Garden of Eden because it's pure spirituality with none of the contagion of the world to interfere with it God says, okay, you know what? Fine. I will let you live in that world. One day a week. What's the mitzvah Shabbos? What does the commandment of Shabbos tell you? No. No. I love you guys. No. No, no, no. The mitzvah Shabbos goes like this. Sheishet yamim Six days you will create. You will work. You will wrestle with the world. You will bring blessings into my world. Six days you must remake my world into the dream that I had at the beginning, says God. On the seventh day you stop and re-enter Eden. So you're allowed to go back to the cave once a week. That's all. It's the
1: same word, shamor,
0: the Garden of Eden. Shamor, ula, shamra, ula, Shamra, ula, Six days, you have to struggle with the world. On the seventh day, you can have your cave again. That's the, that's the recipe. So how do you live in a broken, poisonous, brutal, barbaric, cruel world? If you're a Jew who accepts the mandate of Avram Avinu that I must be a blessing to the world, I live a life of commandments which lead me to a state of kedusha, a state of bonding and oneness so that I open my circle and take the world seriously. But once a week, the world is gonna exhaust me. It's gonna make me so tired. It's gonna break my heart. It's just gonna break my heart. And that's when God says, the gates open. Come back to the garden, refresh yourself, renew yourself, re-energize, be reborn. And at the end of Shabbos, God says, okay, back outside, there's a world to be saved.